This is Music and the Church, a podcast that brings you insight into today's diverse worship landscape by connecting the dots between beliefs and practices so that you can have a happier, healthier ministry. Hi, I'm Sarah Bariza, a researcher and church musician living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm Crawford Wiley, an organist just outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Today we have the third installment of our series on virtuosity with Dr. David Vanderham. In the last two episodes, Josh Busman and I both discussed evangelical music from the aspect of virtuosity and what kinds of virtuosity or displays of musical skill are appropriate in evangelical church services. He was looking at evangelical worship music in episode 18. I was thinking about fundamentalist Christian churches, mostly in the Baptistic tradition, in episode 19. Today's episode with Dr. David Vanderham has a really different angle on virtuosity in that David's work starts with virtuosity. David researches the social construction of virtuosity, which means like what counts as skill and why it matters. So for him, he's starting with, well, what is virtuosity? And then moving into specific examples. Whereas with Josh and I in episode 18 and 19, we're thinking about here's a particular religious context. Now let's think about virtuosity in the context. So David will be talking about the guitarist Tony Melendez, who is a Catholic guitarist who was born without arms, and he plays the guitar with his feet. Initially, when you listen to Tony Melendez's music, it doesn't necessarily sound virtuosic if you're just listening to a recording, but it becomes virtuosic in that he's playing guitar with his feet. So this is an example of thinking about what actually makes something virtuosic if it isn't just the sound itself. So this actually goes back to Crawford's and my discussion in episode 19, thinking about, well, what makes something virtuosic? And we use the example of playing something in a difficult key, or I sometimes deal with sticking notes on one of the organs I play. And um, hopefully no one ever notices that I have a sticking note because I'm so amazing at it <laughs> that you can't actually hear that I have a sticking note, right? But that isn't actually the kind of virtuosity that we've been talking about because, well, no one hears it. Right, virtuosity. we've been thinking about the virtuosity that calls attention to itself. Mm-hmm. And, and that a noticeable as, as the thing to discuss about virtuosity because, in fact, it is calling attention to mm-hmm. itself. Yeah, yeah. This is exactly a case study of, like, well, what makes something virtuosic? Let's get into talking about virtuosity since this is literally your research area. What is the setting or the particular area that you are talking about in relationship to Christian music? So I'm talking primarily about just one person, really. And he's been with me kind of since the start of the project. I literally, I defended my dissertation proposal and then drove to Burlington, North Carolina to interview Tony Melendez, um, who is kind of, seems like everyone has, when I, once I explain who he is, everyone is goes, oh yeah, that guy. Um, and yet not necessarily famous, but has this certain amount of recognition. So Melendez was born without arms, almost certainly because of a medication his mother took that has since been uh, outlawed. And so Melendez did everything with his feet. Wasn't a big deal to him. He talks about it. Um, and, and as for so many guitarists, he found a guitar basically that his dad had laying around, which is what happened to me and like half the guitarists I know. This is how you start. Like there's a, a like a father figure around the thing. Just hanging out and you and you pick it up. And you pick it up. And uh, he learned to play guitar pretty well. Um, and but, but the thing that launches his career, so playing guitar with your feet, that's what seemed to be impressive. The thing that launches his career is in 1987, he gets invited to play at a, a rally for Pope John Paul II in Los Angeles. 
and he plays the song for the Pope, and this would seem to be, okay, this sounds like a big deal. It's the Pope's reaction, honestly, that then is the kind of, you know, launch of his career, because the Pope literally leaps from the stage and goes over and kisses Tony Melendez after he plays this song for him. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, so this is on YouTube. You can watch it. We can link to that. It'll be in the show notes. Yes, you should you should link to that because it, it's one of those things that, that that is the kind of touchstone reference point for everything for Melendez. And so in terms of like how this may or may not sound like virtuosity to you or anyone else at this point, but it's the type of thing that, to step back just a little bit, a, a lot of what I became interested in with virtuosity right at first was just this everyday speech about it that we so often address music through a language of skill and work and not necessarily a language of sound. Mm -hmm. So common to get these type of comments. And so the Pope, when he addresses Melendez, doesn't talk about the kind of theological context of the song, which I think was pretty carefully chosen to be, it was actually a wedding ballad that Melendez sang called mm -hmm. Never Be the Same. And I think it was pretty clearly meant to be like, oh, look, you Pope John Paul II have talked so much about marriage as a reflection of God. Let's do this wedding mm -hmm. ballad. So Pope, the Pope doesn't talk about this, and he doesn't say anything about the sonic characteristics or, you know, anything like that. But he talks about Tony Melendez as courageous, and he, he basically gives him a commission at that moment and says, you know, you're giving hope to all the people. My wish was for you is that you could continue giving this hope. So it's this whole big narrative about your display of skill has so moved me and has such potential power to move others that I, as the Pope, am telling you that this is what you should do with your life. And it sounds like Tony Melendez was really young at this point. I think he was 25 when this happened. Okay, yeah. So yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a, still a fair, fairly young guy. And so I became interested in Melendez partially because I, I, what I, the more I thought about this, his kind of story and how people engage with him, there were certain things that sound a lot like the more canonic discussions of virtuosity and then a lot of things that don't sound anything like it. And the more I thought about it, the more I felt like Melendez forced me to articulate all these kind of assumptions that underpin virtuosity that you don't necessarily have to take stock of if you're just talking about a heavy metal guitarist or a bebop saxophonist or, a, you know, a list piano etude. Mm -hmm. Which, so to use the example of, of like the list etude, right? Yeah. I forget even which concert etude it is, but you have the, the concert etude where it's this kind of roiling accompaniment underneath and the very simple melody up top, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of canonic example of, look at how impressive this is, you know, piano virtuosity. And you're like, well, what makes this virtuosic, right? Well, it's impressive because most human beings have two arms. And this piano piece kind of sounds like it would be best with three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And like, like, wow, this is really hard. <laughs> yeah, because if you, because if you actually listen to it and think purely abstractly about sound, do a sort of, you know, reduced listening, I'm, I'm going to only, uh, you know, think about this as just sound. It's actually a kind of sweet, simple melody over an, an active, but maybe not overly impressive accompaniment. Sounds a lot like a lot of mm -hmm. romantic accompaniment patterns. Mm -hmm. But we don't necessarily think about that with Liszt because we're so used to pianos and we're so used to 19th century piano virtuosity. It's so obvious to, to mm. us that like, this is not a piano four hands arrangement, at which point it becomes just the easiest thing, you, right? You could have a small child play the melody next to you while you play mm -hmm. the accompaniment. Yeah. And so it's the same thing with Melendez. So I haven't said much about how he sounds yet, but 
he's his sound the, the way i talk about it is his sound is completely unmarked he sounds like a lot of people sound when they play guitar and accompany themselves singing various forms of kind of mm -hmm. confessional singer songwriter and contemporary christian music yeah. and praise and worship songs and things like this and so in, from from a purely sonic standpoint you go this sounds like a lot of this music sounds mm -hmm. but the mode of production is definitively marked and I think that's the case with a lot of virtuosity, mm -hmm. where it's not just something that, like, this sound is impressive, you know, intrinsically always, no matter how you get it. But it's like, mm. there's something about the actions that go into making this sound and the specific mm -hmm. actions for this specific sound in this context that begin to make it take on a meaning that it wouldn't have otherwise. Like in the sense that it's physically difficult to play with your feet or it's physically difficult to play the list with just two hands and not four hands. Well, so yeah, I, I was, I was going to bring it in. Like it's, it's physically difficult, but it's also physically difficult at a task that is widely culturally salient, right? That like everyone who engages with this gets what it means to engage with the guitar. And while... Oh, Oh, you know, yeah. it's so easy to talk about, well, everybody can play guitar. I, I can tell you as a guitar instructor, well, I wouldn't say, oh, some people just can't. I also meet lots of frustrated amateurs, right? Who are like, mm -hmm. actually, everyone told me it was easy and I can't do this. So it's seeing mm -hmm. him do something that you assume is physically difficult, but you also recognize not just as like the kind of joke that I say is like, you know, teenagers since the, the 60s recognize that like to pick up a guitar is to be able to say something, right? It's this idea mm -hmm. that you're going to make some kind of personal statement. You're going to express something, yeah. And so it's not a... And I guess, let me go this, this is what I was going to try to go towards. Um, it's physically difficult, but because of the fact that his body is different from the normative body, the fact that he doesn't have arms, it's not just a trick, right? So he says in his, his autobiography, he says, you could play guitar with your feet too if you're willing to practice hard enough. But mm -hmm. obviously, if I play guitar with my feet, I'm a jerk. <laughs> and yeah. and it's, yes. it's not interesting <laughs> yep. or compelling. Nope. It's just like a, that would be a party trick. Ex exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a gimmick. It's not interesting. And so it's the fact that it's this difficult thing, but he's not just doing this difficult thing to try to show off, which is where it starts to tie into the religious connotations and everything else. That it's mm -hmm. obviously has so much yeah. about the Pope's reactions, but it's also that he's not attempting to do anything that is going to draw attention to himself. It's the fact that his body is marked and thus this skill is marked. And so mm -hmm. his whole persona is the persona that you would expect of a kind of confessional singer, songwriter, worship leader figure, right? He's very mm -hmm. sincere. He's not trying to do anything to draw attention to himself, but obviously that doesn't matter because the attention is always there. So when I, I, I interviewed him that afternoon of my dissertation defense and talked to him about this kind of stuff, and, and he, he, he employs the language of passing a lot, where he says, if you put him behind the curtain and he played, um, and then he, you know somebody else played with two arms and played in a kind of normal way, he says that you know unless you knew his voice or knew him, that there would be really be no way of knowing it, right? And this is what I was saying earlier mm -hmm. about the, the unmarked sound versus the, the marked mode of sonic production. And even beyond that, it's not just like, so what does it mean to say like you wouldn't tell the difference? So he, he, he utilizes an open G tuning. And so his, his basic approach is that he has a guitar laid down in front of him. It's an open G tuning. And then he frets mostly with his big toe and sometimes his middle toe. And an open G tuning, it's all open fifths except for the second string, which is the, the third of that chord. Mm -hmm. So yeah. whenever he needs a minor chord, he has to bar on a whole fret with the big toe and use that middle toe to reach down to get that minor third. Um, but almost mm -hmm. always that top string is droning. So even mm -hmm. stylistically, yeah. it sounds a heck of a lot like virtually every worship leader that I've heard play a lot of the songs that he plays from a kind of 90s praise and worship um, or contemporary Christian music context where there's mm -hmm. um, there's a drone on either 
the one or the five throughout the whole thing. So it's not just like he's yeah, getting yeah. these chords and like, oh, this doesn't sound bad, but it's even like stylistically, like, you know, you hear the way that even these chords are voiced and you're like, this yeah. sounds an awful lot like what this style of guitar playing sounds like. Yeah. So it, so it's it's in that way, it, it's not just um, like, it's not just competency, but it's, it's a stylistic appropriateness that his approach to the instrument captures this because there's a tendency to think about it in terms of complete exceptions of like oh he he's the only person in the world that can do this he's absolutely not oh yeah there are other people who play guitar with with their feet and they don't all play with the same open tuning there's one person i know in particular oh. who plays um in standard tuning and plays a lot of kind of blues licks and stuff like that oh. yeah so it's it's one of those things like you wouldn't think about that unless you're writing a dissertation on it and you go well i have to go look and see who else i can find who plays guitar with their feet and there are people that do it yeah and there's a tendency in the kind of feel good articles that are written about Melendez, they talk about the tuning as the secret and like, oh, I unlocked it. But one of the points that I make is like, yeah, he chose this because partially it, you know, it's way easier to play a chord this way with your feet than to play a, a C chord, right? Which requires you to stretch across three frets. Like that's yeah, hard to do with yeah. your feet, but it also just works for the musical goals he has, right? And other mm -hmm. people who yeah, have different musical goals, in. whether they're playing with their feet or their hands, use different things, right? So I'm trying to give him mm -hmm. some musical agency here, right? That it's not just purely yeah. like, oh, this was my option of what I did. Mm -hmm. The other thing that this gets to in terms of what's very different about virtuosity in this context versus other things, is there's this tendency to think about um, virtuosity as like a comparative thing. There are lots of scholars um, uh, that, that will talk about it more or less as it's about critics and kind of especially having a standard show pieces that you can compare that everyone knows is supposed to be difficult. Um, this is how a, mm. a philosopher named V.A. Howard writes about this a lot. And even uh, Phil Auslander talks about it in this kind of critic-centered comparative way. Um, and what mm -hmm. Melendez shows is that like I have yet to find any anyone <laughs> um anyone other than myself who after hearing tony melendez goes okay let's see who else i can find who plays this way people aren't looking for actually like real comparisons oh. in this context it's the comparisons are more yeah. often to their own kind of sense of embodied activity right that they go mm -hmm. oh like i don't need to hear another guitarist who does something even that similar to it like my comparisons are like i know what this style of music sounds like and i know kind of what it how hard it is to even like do any sort of thing that requires some sort of precision and degree of speed or anything else. So it's not actually nearly as deeply comparative as we think it is, or at least the comparisons are not always so kind of one-to-one -one or looking for critical peers. A lot of it is more just a comparison that is implicit in the background between my own kind of embodied experience. Well, oh, I'm wondering, is uh, most of the discourse around Tony Melendez from fellow Catholics? And is it somehow like the point is, is kind of like to say like, this is like a marvelous gift from God that he's able to do this? Right. So Melendez, in my experience, in live contexts, yes, it is almost always fellow Catholics. But in terms of YouTube and lots of other media outlets that will pick up and run a kind of human interest story, mm -hmm. not necessarily. Which is, again, one of the interesting things that, in terms of thinking how the identity, whether religious or otherwise, because he also, in my experience, plays quite a lot to Latino Catholics, right? Mm -hmm. So an even more specific group. Again, because of his narrative of um, his family, he was born in Nicaragua, moved to the U.S. Um, so, right, he's part of a family of first-generation immigrants. Mm -hmm. He's a devout Catholic. Mm -hmm. So it's the type of thing that it's not like you don't have to be catholic to be impressed by this yeah, right yeah. um and you don't even have to be religious at all and lots of people will just kind of see him play um there's a youtube recording of him playing uh let it be that is 
kind of widely viewed and, and beloved. But obviously, if you are a devout Catholic, that enriches this whole thing a lot. Um, at, at the performance he gave in uh, Burlington in 2014, he uh, was joking because John Paul II had, had been canonized, right? And he's a yeah. saint now. Yeah. And he kind of half, half jokingly, he goes, you know, I, I, don't, I don't feel old, but I guess I am a relic. And everyone kind of laughs a little bit, but then it's like, no, but really, you, you are. You were touched by a saint. You you are you're a relic. <laughs> like, um, like his body is so significant mm-hmm. in that mode. Yeah, yeah. So there's this huge body of literature within disability studies that's very critical of the overcoming narrative, which is central to everything Melendez. Yeah, does. yeah. When you say like, oh, and the Pope said, oh, you're so courageous. I was like, oh, exactly. My little flag went up. Yeah, it's it's this overcoming narrative, right? Or and you get people who talk about it on the internet as well, and just call it inspiration porn, mm-hmm. right? That it's mm-hmm. just there to yeah. kind of make you feel better. And there are lots of kind of in-depth, nuanced critiques about it, but the basic critique about the overcoming narrative is that it's dehumanizing because it requires kind of superhumanity and thus something other than humanity, mm-hmm. right? Rather than allowing the disabled individual mm-hmm. to just be. So basically, the implicit message is you need to be inspiring or be invisible if you have a disability. Mm, yeah. These are kind of the two options. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no in between. And so that never goes away. But what was interesting to me was to see how it took on more significance in the context of, the, of that Burlington concert, because I talked to one of the organizers of that, of that concert, um, and it was really put on primarily... Um, for the Spanish-speaking youth group at this Catholic parish. Mm -hmm. And what he told me is is he said that, you know, Melendez was important to bring here, not just because he played for the Pope and the Pope kissed him and everything else, but as someone who could speak to the Latino youth in the community Mm -hmm. and that this overcoming narrative took on a lot more significance precisely because uh, Mitchell and Snyder are, are uh, some uh, disability scholars. They talk about disability is the master trope of human disqualification. Mm-hmm. And so Melendez displaying this skill and being so impressive becomes the kind of master trope of human accomplishment. It maps onto the identities of the first or second generation immigrant or the, you know, anyone for whom English is not their first language that might be a disempowering thing. And this is like something that you're overcoming and and it's inspiring to see someone who's overcome this? Exactly. Yeah. So so it, it's one of those things where there is a lot of value and a lot of good reason to critique the overcoming narrative, but it was it was so apparent to me in this context why that narrative had so much power, that it was precisely as a way of addressing various other sorts of power imbalances, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which just makes it stickier, right? Yeah. Uh, you would have Melendez leading a chant of, si yo puedo, right? Yes, I can. Um, and, and the tickets to the concert have the phrase... Uh, no me digas que no puedes, right? Don't tell me that you can't. Oh. And so the whole the whole thing is built around this. Um, and this and this is another, I think, really important thing about virtuosity that it is not limited to the case of someone like Melendez with a disability. But uh, Judith Hamera is a performance studies scholar. She talks about that it is really important for the ways that we kind of imagine work and how work might be valued and how our ability to just kind of make something worthwhile out of our activities. It's a central thing that virtuosity does. Can we talk about that in relationship to like ministry? Because a lot of church musicians or or pastors and other pastoral leaders will say, oh, it's not work or it's not performance, it's ministry. Yeah. And virtuosity gets kind of mixed into this in an uncomfortable kind of way. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about this because I was listening to your episode about when you're talking about play. Oh, yeah. And uh, part of my 
in my, in my research, I talk about how the goal for virtuosity that it rarely meets, but that we, we want is for virtuosity to be kind of work that is done so well that it returns as play. Mm, like when you see a figure skater and you think, oh, that looks so effortless and you know it's not effortless. Exactly. That it, it looks effortless. And, it looks fun. And, and not just that, but it, but it's also, it's, it's not alienated either. Such unalienated labor that it is affectively rewarding for the person who's performing it, right? That they're not just doing it to impress you or to win the gold medal or to keep the church gig or what, you know, to, to do any of the things that you need to do with your work, but you're doing it and you're doing it so well because you love it, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's tied into this, this kind of dream of even though most of the kind of classic sociologists who talk about play, they always define it in opposition to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah virtuosity is this desire like but what if we could have what if we could unite them? yeah what if we could put them together mm -hmm. i think virtuosity also in this kind of setting also has this kind of glory of like wow i'm able to do this with my body that's where like the fun and the joy is yeah absolutely this this feeling of using your body in, in a way that feels like really uh it feels really right right when you're doing any sort of kind of demanding task and you're kind of in the flow of it and everything else it's like this is rewarding this is really exciting i would say too that historically there's been a suspicion of virtuosity because of the way that values become impure especially during the 19th century whenever there's always a, a songbook to be sold or a uh, commission to be gotten mm -hmm. or there's always some kind of financial thing lurking in the background mm -hmm. but i think for a lot of people you look at someone like melinda or something else the value is there in his that he's doing something that is true to his religious identity and to his religious commitments mm -hmm. he is using his body in an effective way which is deeply compelling mm -hmm. but he he's also and i think people they really say it but there's this idea that like it's apparently at least economically viable enough for him to continue doing mm -hmm. it right yeah yeah and i think for a lot of people that's another thing when they look at the virtuoso it's not just like look what you can do with your body or look at how you're you are i guess embodying all these kind of ethical or religious or what other other values mm -hmm. you have but look at the way that you are apparently also able to navigate the kind of material world through this mm -hmm. such that you can dedicate yourself yeah. to it in a certain yeah. way right yeah. and I, I bet it's also tied up oh. into this idea of the pope commissioning him to do this well exactly you get you can get a lot of musicians who could not uh could not struct a better origin story right like if you if you were if you were trying to write a script you know like okay so i think i'd like for the you know the most important figure in my religion to give me a direct commission to play music for the rest of my life it's mind-boggling when you think about that um, <laughs> um and so the fact that that comes about and he clearly does lean into it um, and, and does go for it is really compelling for his audiences the other thing that, that I want to say that doesn't get talked about as much, but it's it's also just kind of remarkable, is what was said before Melendez played for the Pope, because he was presented as a gift. <laughs> Someone said, oh, now, Holy Father, we now have a special gift that we would like to present to you. Our gift represents courage, the courage of self-motivation and family support, which I think is really telling that it's this idea that this person who's going to display this amazing skill, like this is in itself a sort of offering a gift to you as, as you know, visiting us here. It's also clear in all of this, there, there is never a discourse about Melendez as sort of miraculous. He's always amazing, but he's never miraculous. It's almost just always like, this is the kind of strength one gets from one's faith and the sort of family stability that is tied into oh. this faith. 
so that anyone can have this, anyone who's following God. Yeah, and that's part of where this whole over overcoming narrative comes in, that ultimately it's this deep source of strength that, no, this is not like an act of God that he can do this. Um, and he's and he always pushes back against that. But any kind of like, oh, you know, it must you must be a natural. Anything that would kind of take away from this work ethic ideal. Mm -hmm. I like pointing out that when I interviewed him, the only thing, he, he was a fantastic person to interview. I, I couldn't believe uh, how just kind of like, generous and forthcoming he was um the only thing that he said that was not in like that just kind of came out of the blue not in response to mm -hmm. me um was saying basically saying that i had to work to be able to play guitar this way so this was his only unprompted comment was there still has to be the time the practice it's not like overnight i could just do it i had to take the time to learn the instrument and so this is again when i when i think about virtuosity not just being tied to kind of the most impressive overt kind of pyrotechnic sounds but tied oftentimes to a kind of ethical value about how did you get these sounds mm. right like how but how did you get them yeah um, because especially in the 21st century and really before that but like there's this feeling that like with technology there are lots of ways of cheating right even though virtuosity there's a long history of thinking about it as a way of effectively navigating technologies mm -hmm. there's always a fine line between like what counts as like a clever innovation and what's cheating with the technology mm -hmm. yeah and in this in this context it's just very much like no i i worked for mm -hmm. this like i came about this honestly yeah um, which is, again, part of why there's there's also a, a lot of scholarship that talks about virtuosity as, as inherently distancing, that, you know, the virtuoso is always this kind of demigod figure who's just, you know, amazing, and then the kind of commoners are always way below. But it seems like in his case that that's not the case. Exactly. For Melendez, it, it's relatability through and through and through, which, again, you could find a lot of people to talk about the ways that people kind of imagine themselves through the virtuoso. And Melendez is just enabling that as much as possible. It's not a leap. It's not a there's very little effort that one has to go to to begin to project oneself on onto Melendez, especially if you're coming from a Catholic or especially Latino yeah. Catholic perspective, um, because you just go, oh, I relate to so many things about this person. Well, this brings us back to like, we were talking at the beginning about being inspiring. And it seems like in his case, mm -hmm. it's like, a I don't know if inspiring is the correct word, but that he uses his example of faith and work ethic to be inspiring, like on purpose. For sure. Yeah. And that's that's where the most facile versions of the kind of critique of the overcoming narrative are. It's really easy to look at it in kind of like a television news, human interest stories where they just kind of like get a person. And it, it's when there was, there's not an obvious show of agency from the person who's depicted mm -hmm. in such stories it's really really easy like and the, the critique i mean it's just kind of you know yeah the mm -hmm. whole thing is deeply problematic and everything else but the, the issue here is yeah like you said M melendez could not take this up more wholehearted this is not something that we are projecting on him or mm -hmm. audiences are projecting on him you know completely against his will this is something that he really wants them to take on yeah it seems like he's deploying it on purpose to like as his ministry to, in order to minister to a youth group yeah he absolutely is and i would also say that at least i'm not i i don't get the feeling that other people felt this way um that i talked to at that concert and i don't see this you know coming up in comments and everything else but i feel like he also pushes against this kind of that sometimes his his and, and you could put this just on the side of relatability but you know he he talks about um this was a story about a little girl going up to him 
and asking him what what it feels like to not have arms and his response was human oh which is which yeah and it's one of those things where if you're <laughs> if you're very cynical you're like it's still just overcoming and like no here he's just saying like this is not about me transcending my body like this is my body i play guitar with it mm -hmm. you all find it amazing and like i get that and i'm using that but he my feeling and th there were a few other smaller comments like that that i my feeling was that he he's undercutting it in subtle ways such that it doesn't completely completely carry him away despite the fact that like you said he is very directly using it as a way to spread his message i was trying to find a way to ask him like how he felt about the fact that he doesn't have to kind of do a grand flourish to awe people right that like his basic approach to the instrument is an object of fascination and awe for so many people and his and his response was uh, so interesting so his response was this i would say every artist has his niche that would be my niche the shock of he's using his feet i don't know if i'd be as popular or as well received if i played with my arms if i had the arms and i just played i think music would have been harder i don't know if i would have had a moment to sing for the pope i don't know if the pope would have jumped off the stage to come and kiss me if it wasn't a guy with no arms playing the guitar with his feet it's hard to really know. I really don't know. But I would say it would be different than it was if I had arms standing up playing the guitar singing. I think he would receive it. Yes. Enjoy it. Maybe. But a guy playing the guitar with his feet. It's like, no way. That can't be happening. I love the fact that he's, he's just very much like every artist has his niche, right? Mm -hmm. Like to, to editorialize a little bit, right? There's always, you're always looking for some kind of hook like that. And He's like, mm -hmm. this is this is my niche. This is what I do. Mm -hmm. This was also part of like the big takeaway from my like this case study I did on Melendez for me anyways, was that there's no such thing as unqualified virtuosity, meaning there's a whole set of kind of implicit embodied perspectives and valuable frameworks that mm. are always at work. Yeah, we just don't often feel the need to actually kind of excavate them. Do you mean like in the sense of like, oh, you see a six-year-old playing the piano, something really fancy, and it's like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Whereas if you saw like a 20-year-old playing it, it would be like, whatever. Like, like it, it depends on who's doing it. Exactly. It, it depends on a whole set of a whole set of things about that. Like you said, yeah, it's the, the whole prodigy narrative is a narrative of, oh, it's not that these sounds are just impressive sounds. It's that these sounds are impressive sounds, especially from this person. And yeah. that, that this is always, there's always these qualifications that go into it. Um, and so we, we can try to make it a story that's just kind of about abstract merit, but it's so tied into, especially, you know, I, I'm, I'm only talking right now about kind of performance based virtuosity. So you could, we could talk about intellectual virtuosity or whatever else and that's maybe a slightly different thing but especially within performance you're just it's so embedded into these kind of technological frameworks of the instruments and the embodied status of the player that it becomes just completely there's these, these qualifications are always there and that, that was one of the things that i, I thought with melendez he he kind of <laughs> makes it makes the argument in so many words there's always a niche our dominant ideas about virtuosity are just very 19th century ideas. James DeVille recently called it the list problem and just said that, mm. you know, we are, we're still thinking through the framework of, of list all these years later. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of aspects to that, but one of them is, is the association of virtuosity with the sublime, right? This idea that it's always the overwhelming kind of all or nothing type of phenomenon such that it's either entirely about virtuosity or virtuosity is beside the point, right? Mm. I think what Melendez shows, and I think what is the case in probably any religious context, is actually 
it's not that people people aren't shouting wow throughout the entire concert right while melendez is playing right eventually mm-hmm. <laughs> they're paying attention and but it, but the whole kind of frame of like this person is doing this amazing thing doesn't go away either right yeah so i think it's recognizing that kind of richness of the phenomenon that it doesn't have to be an overwhelming sublime display right which kant's definition of the sublime is that in comparison to which all else seems small mm-hmm. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah it's not always that with melendez and it's certainly not that with with most people who are making uh, music in a religious context um, and they don't want it to be and I think the fear from those who, who might say oh like no please don't play such a rousing prelude on the organ or for the love of God don't let that guitarist take a solo is this fear that it might mm-hmm. like become an overwhelming type of thing yeah but I, I think talking to audiences and talking to Melendez and other things like that I think what you see there is that like no like his religious commitments and the story of him playing for the pope and the basic facts of his embodied approach to the instrument are always there and they're they're not overwhelming the other such that he's not going to let his ability to play be subsumed into some kind of all-powerful god narrative that says you know god just made me do this right no he wants to talk about i learned this just like people learn anything else but at the same time, he's also by no means going to let you just sit there and go, wow, you're really good at guitar because he's going to be singing songs and telling stories that are all about his faith commitment. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think it's it's still a hard idea for us to get over. Quite frankly, while I write so much about virtuosity, I thought about doing away with the term because I think it calls into mind this kind of either or thinking for a lot of people where it's like, oh, so you're saying this is just about showing off or something else like that. And with Melendez, it's this really complex layered set of values that are at play that are by no means going to just kind of obliterate one another. That's it for this week's episode of Music and the Church. You can see all the resources David and I mentioned in our episode show notes, musicandthechurch.com slash 20. Share your thoughts by emailing us at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leaving a voicemail at 513-580-4282. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share it with your friends who love church music. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at musicandthechurch.com slash sign up. We'll be back next week.